I'm an accidental Irish historian and not really one, um, and I'm interested and have been for a long time in entitlements to health and health and well-being. So I'm interested as a historian in the question of what happens to you if you get or you need at some point in time, does, is there some kind of a way of uh, recognizing a human entitlement and responding to it? And I'm interested in medicine as a delivery system for various kinds of entitlements of health and well-being. If we think about medicine as a delivery system, we think about both the access to medical care, but we also think about the borders of medical care. What is a disease? Um, how far ahead of the getting disease should a medical system uh, come in to help prevent you from getting the disease? How far after the disease should a medical system intervene to make sure that you don't relapse? Um, and if hunger kills you, uh, why isn't it part of medicine? Um, so issues of entitlement are very big, very central issues in early 19th century Irish history. We sort of have a colonial government. We have vast class, ethnic, and confessional divisions. We have an enormous amount of, of dependency, um, transient dependency, some fairly permanent dependency. Um, we have a record of uh, famines and fevers uh, occurring frequently. Uh, we have an enormous uh, set of institutions of social medicine. And then we have Malthus, uh, who's hanging around telling us there are no entitlements. Um, so what I'm interested in is then what's happening at the front lines where doctors are confronting these kinds of social problems. And there's two parts uh, to that kind of frontline research. One is to look at things like case records, what happens to certain people with certain kinds of illnesses, poverty-based illnesses, when they confront the medical system. The other part of it, which is what I'm going to be talking about today, is... How do doctors think about these issues? What are their technical terms, the theories that they use to apply to these sorts of problems? And this is research that builds on the research by Peter Gray, uh, Larry Geary, um, uh, Margaret Crawford, who's done a lot of interesting research on deficiency diseases in Irish history, uh, also the old uh, work of William MacArthur, pioneering historian of, of famine disease, and of course, uh, particularly Cormac O'Grada. Is working about demographic aspects of these issues. Um, just to sort of alert you to the, the sort of received view on this, uh, it used to be that we thought of most of the disease that occurred in the famine era and the pre-famine era as typhus. Later on, some people sort of recognized the presence of relapsing fever. I'm going to sort of problematize both those categories in this talk today. So just um, to give you a sense of the sensitivity of these issues in Irish history, a couple of quotations about the ways in which medical institutions served a particular kind of, of very delicate political need. And you might want to just take a look at this, this second quotation. I'm not going to talk about that aspect, but it's quite important here. So my departure point um, then is an apparently offhand remark a lecture by the august Robert Graves. He's one of the Troika usually listed as the leaders of the great Dublin clinical school of the early 19th century. And in the midst of a lecture on the treatment of fever, Graves writes that feverish inflammatory symptoms are precisely those 
that follow hunger. Quote, take a healthy person, deprive him of food, and what is the consequence? First, hunger goes away, returns again. After two or three days, the sensation assumes a morbid character, and instead of being a simple feeling of want and a desire for food, it becomes a disordered craving attended with dragging pain in the stomach, burning thirst, and epigastric tenderness, fever, and delirium. Here we have the supervention of gastric disease and inflammation of the brain as results of protracted starvation. Unquote. Having likened hunger to fever, Graves then addresses nutrition in fever. One cannot count on fevered patients to take in what they need. The result, symptoms like those which arise from starvation in the healthy subject. He then reiterates... Quote, how close a resemblance the symptoms generated by long-continued denial or want of food are to those which are observed in the worst forms of typhus. Pain of the stomach, epigastric tenderness, thirst, vomiting, determination of blood to the brain, suffusion to the eyes, headache, sleeplessness, and finally furious delirium are symptoms of protracted abstinence, and to these we may add tendency to putrefaction of the animal tissues. Unquote. Overall, the passage is not mainly about hunger, but about pathology and therapeutics. Graves recognizes what German pathophysiologists of the next generation will stress. Long feverishness exhausts the body's resources, which must be met by supplying nutriment, however difficult that may be. <clears throat> Graves hints further that central aspects of the pathology of fever are problems of nutrition because the clinical presentation resembles hunger. All this sets up Graves' famous proposed epitaph, he fed fevers. While Graves thought that starvation and fever were distinct, he leaves them as indistinguishable. There is no secret pathognomic. So a lot of what I want to talk about today is what happens if Graves is right. Irish historians know that much is at stake in the distinction. Um, curiously, the remarks, these come from the mid-famine 1848 edition of Graves' clinical lectures, which is different from, uh, they're much expanded from the 1842 edition, and they come in the book about 40 pages before Graves begins to rant against Dominic Harrigan's um, famous Hunger is the cause of fever doctrine. Corrigan, Graves' erstwhile protege and nearly as eminent among the Dublin clinicians, held that hunger led to fever, some of which will be contagious. And this will give you a sense of not only Corrigan's view, but also some of the politics that go along with Corrigan's view, because he's presenting these ideas in a uh, sort of a highly... Um, controversial sort of pamphlet. Um, he did not identify a mechanism nor say hunger was the sole cause or always produced fever or that all fever was from hunger. But in his view and that of others, you solve fever by solving hunger. Though he acknowledged similarity of symptoms to the point of identity and possibility of a common pathology and admits that hunger may be the occasion of fever, Graves usually treats the resemblances and associations as accidental and incidental. And you solve fever by not solving hunger. This is the top is Graves' uh, rant against Corrigan. The bottom there is one of Graves' earlier 
uh, more sober views of the relation of fever to hunger. Um, Graves objected to policies like the Corrigan-administered soup kitchens uh, of the spring of 1847. Sites of congregation facilitated the spread of contagion. The alternative, what to do about hunger, is not the doctor's problem. Fever is. Thus, having insisted that the fever-hunger distinction is problematic, Graves decided that it was very real and was being accurately made. Earlier, he had held Corrigan's position, and their dispute during the famine reflected the deep changes in medical charity politics explored by Geary and Gray. The Catholic Corrigan was comfortable integrating existing medical charities into the post-1838 poor law system, where there was considerable Catholic control of local institutions and posts for rank-and-file medical practitioners. The evangelical graves atop the system of medical charities um, fought against the loss of influence over appointments uh, to the charities. For Corrigan, a traditional coordination of fever and hunger response was appropriate. Uh, For Graves, uh, uh, looked for a much sharper demarcation of medicine from welfare, which incidentally led to a more modern conception of fevers as discrete diseases. So my concern here is with this fever that they're arguing about. With regard to famine, fever, pre-famine Ireland from about 1790 is singular in the magnitude of both and in their perceived linkage. Magnitude first. Ireland is the grand mart of fever, wrote the Belfast surgeon reformer Henry McCormick in 1835, and it was uniformly associated with distress. Quote, in both town and country, the seeds of the malady are always rife, only requiring a few of the exciting causes, such as famine, misery, damp, and cold, to produce a fearful increase. Writing in 1816, at the beginning of the first of the famine fevers, William Stoker noted that Cork Street's monthly intake was roughly the same as the total intake of the London Fever Hospital during its eight-year existence. Dublin's population, about a fifth of Greater London's. Um, Cork Street's only handling about a quarter uh, of Dublin's fevered during those years. So halfway through the Great Famine, we have nearly 580,000 treated in Irish fever hospitals. So from 1800 to the famine was the golden age of Irish fever hospitals, about 100 in the mid-1840s. Um, Though modeled on the Manchester and Newcastle experiments of Ferrier and Clark, Irish fever hospitals constituted a singular health care system dedicated to what was perceived as an unprecedented medical problem. In these hospitals, there was more fever than any other place in the world. With some ambivalence, Irish doctors asserted they owned the disease. Experience made them international fever authorities. Cargan's view was orthodox. Woodham Smith's observation that, quote, in 1847, it was universally believed that fever was caused by starvation, unquote, could not have been said of English, French, or American theorists. It would have been somewhat more true of Scottish or German theorists. And for Ireland, while strictly true, it vastly oversimplifies. If there is much more fever in Ireland than in other places, multiple episodes of regional or general famine, a common view that hunger is the chief antecedent of fever, 
A view of the best clinician in Ireland that hunger and fever are clinically indistinguishable, we're entitled to ask what this fever was. If we know, we think, what hunger is, what is on the other side of the equal sign? What do Irish practitioners actually mean when they say fever? or when they use other kinds of technical terms for designating symptoms uh, or complications. And just a few of the kinds of terms that I'm going to be talking about. Um, and I will get to most of them. Um, you might want to keep your, uh, attend to the, the different kinds of spots that we're going to be talking about up here, which is the, the first group there. I'll try to come back to these. Um, so even the most descriptive of these terms, of course, are theory-laden, and they're used differently by different practitioners, which is one of the problems. But among the variety are some uh, conspicuously Irish sets of issues that are being debated, and that's, again, one of the things I'm going to be returning to. Well, the subject has implications for intellectual history of disease concepts, for the social history of medical institutions, for the historical epidemiology, and for the evolution of medical police in Ireland. It, the stakes, of course, are far higher. Infectious disease and starvation fit into the big story uh, of Irish history in very different ways. Diagnosis then has implications for that story, and I'm going to come back to that at the end. Uh, you just see, and I apologize for the darkness of this, this is from the Falls Road some, some years ago. Somebody's talking about Britain's genocide by starvation calling the famine Ireland's Holocaust. So, and that's a famine designation. It's not clear that it would be a designation that would, you would use for epidemics. And so this is one of the interesting things about the ways in which Famine, as opposed to epidemics, is sort of represented uh, in Irish history. So my first claim is that in pre-famine Ireland, fever theory is broadly classical. Indeed, Ireland is the world's remaining center of classical medicine. I don't mean they were Hippocrateans or Galenists. I do mean they espoused a holistic and physiologically oriented medicine in which mismanagement of the non-naturals food, air, activity, retenta and excreta, sleep and passions of the mind were causally implicated in most disease. The chief touchstones were William Cullen and his renegade student John Brown, and behind them, uh, Borhava. Um, their classicism was of a piece with their arrogance. Dublin's medical leaders regularly shudder at medical education elsewhere. For them, both medicine and surgery were learned Latinate professions, a Trinity BA was the ideal prerequisite to begin training. Middle-class MDs, like Corrigan, and Londoners were with certificates from the Society of Apothecaries. Please, they were no gentlemen. And especially Paris, their great rival, where anatomical pathological reductionism was a product of a factory hospital. Dublin practitioners took great pride in atheoretical clinical observation in their great hospitals. Interested in pathological anatomy, they did not fetishize tissues and lesions. That would violate their commitment to empiricism. Usually, they interpreted anatomical observations within a framework of holism. Destruction wrought by disease manifested in various parts at various stages. 
so-called lesions were pathological, not semiotic. They did not reveal the disease, they were it, or some part. Hardly surprising that those who died of lengthy fevers had intestinal lesions or perforations. Debilitation deteriorated. An anonymous Irish review of William Jenner's famous 1850 monograph distinguishing typhus from typhoid fever captures both content and attitude. The writer's experience is entirely opposed. Jenner fails to cite Irish authors, relies on atypical fatal cases, and his cases are many degrees too limited to justify any conclusions. His theory fits only the cases that fit the theory. The Parisians snubbed back, effectively ignored Dublin, and only a few took notice. The Francophile American theorists Alicia Bartlett in the early 1840s, the consolidator Charles Murchison in 1862, both saw the absurdity of writing about typhus without including the Irish literature, but both twisted it beyond recognition. Some general implications of theory. Classical medicine is physiological. Disease names will be heuristics, descriptors of generic pathological states, which will blend into other states. Writing in 1818, John Murray of Cavan, quote, I cannot help thinking that a methodological division of fevers into species and varieties has been a serious evil in medicine. It is a dangerous practice to treat fevers according to their names, which are and ever will be arbitrary, unquote. The great William Stokes would tell students of the infinite varieties in the appearance and character of fevers. Remote causes were conceived as multiple and relatively interchangeable. Thus, one may understand the pathologies of fever and hunger as overlapping, recognize the systemic disruptions involved will have multiple and alternative causes, including a role for precipitating contagion. Just as most pre-famine doctors, Irish doctors, believe hunger can cause fever, they also believe contagion can and far from being exclusive alternatives, the two are usually united into a single theory which explains why both rich and poor get fever and how the fevers of the two classes are related. Contagion, however, is usually an explanation of incidence, not type. In this regard, Graves' mid-famine contagionism, which sounds modern in implying an independent and exogenous contagious fever whose only determinant is geographic, uh, is anomalous. There's much room for the what the pioneering medical historian of the famine, William MacArthur, recognized as co-pathology. Many cases reflect multiple afflictions and conditions. In a continuum view of health and illness, however, this will have been norm, not anomaly. So, what is fever? It's not a thermometric designation, though Dublin clinicians, notably Francis Barker, were under-recognized pioneers in clinical thermometry. But however determined, raised core temperature was neither the primary or necessary component of fever. Prior to natural heat, Galen's view, had given way to rapid pulse, then to nervous system disruption rigors, to some set of these, then to a multi-stage model of a general process in which there was great room left for variability. So here's a definition, early 19th century, alterations in various kind of temperature and other things, but not hot temperature. Um, 
how then did one diagnose? Bartholomew Parr began the Febris article in his 1819 medical dictionary with a case of an elderly woman with no uncommon heat or rapidity of pulse, but whom he he knew had serious fever from, quote, the peculiar feel of the pulse and, quote, the tenseness of the palms, unquote. Tense wrist tensions were tendons were important. Uh, Also a characteristic countenance. The subject's sense of being fevered. Heats and chills, wooziness and pain were also important. Good doctors knew fever, even if they could not say how. Parr writes of fever as a general disease. It was also a symptom, as in, I feel a bit feverish today, and a feature of many other diseases, notably pneumonia, tuberculosis, and the exanthems, or eruptive fevers, which sometimes exemplify fever and sometimes seem marginal to it. It was also a feature of local inflammatory infections, or phlegmasiae, which could become general. Certainly fevers vary, Some understand that variation primarily as clinical rather than etiological. As for etiology, um, in the case of epidemic or seasonal fevers, they draw on the Sydenhamian notion of epidemic constitutions, exemplified by the mid-18th century diaries of John Huxham for Plymouth and John Ruddy for Dublin. That is, each year's fever has characteristic features, possibly a function of objective meteorological variables. Entering in, two was an ancient view of generic pestilence. Some epidemic constitutions attack animals and plants, blighting crops and bringing famine, as well as making fevers more malignant. But usually, continuous variation trumps specificity. This year's flu may resemble an earlier year's, but it is not identical. How to distinguish fevers? Adoption of a stadial model of the fever process represents retreat from expectation of early diagnostic distinctiveness, but it leaves us labeling disease only at its end. But since managing public risk by isolating contagion was the central mission of the fever hospital, or euphemistically, house of recovery, there was imperative for early isolation even before a fever had declared itself. To forestall epidemics, it was important to make hospitalization accessible to all and to emphasize cure. Most managers welcome those who apply. Some ultra-contagionists seek to restrict hospitalization only to those likely to spread an epidemic, but practically this is a hard principle to apply. The results, large numbers of cases, including some admittedly unfevered, many kinds and degrees of febrility, but generally supportive care, high cure rates, and actually higher during epidemics. If fever were a series of stages or a process Against what standard did one judge that process? It had long been the intermittent or malarial fever. A simple sequence or period of chills and heats was repeated every day or every second or third day. Longer continued fevers like pneumonia or those we call typhus and typhoid conformed. The periodicity, now called remittent rather than intermittent, was simply reduced first to a diurnal variation, and then to no significant change at all. 
At the other end of the feverish spectrum, a brief bout of feverishness, often seen as a direct response to conditions and activities, known to the ancients as a diary or ephemeral fever, uh, later known as fibricula, was indistinguishable from a non-recurring intermittent. One of the places where what after 1850 would be called relapsing fever can be viewed, I think mistakenly, as the characteristic Irish famine fever, one of the places where this got lost was was within the framework of periodic fevers, because a relapsing fever and a periodic fever, I think you can figure out, they sort of sound like they might be uh, the same thing. Structuring understanding of these fevers was the Hippocratic notion of critical days, a central concern for the Dublin disease chronicler John Ruddy in 1770, and still for Dublin fever doctors in the 1820s, though they were increasingly impatient. Major changes, of course, including crisis, the fork leading to recovery or death, occurred on specific days after a fever's inception. As many of what were called idiopathic or essential fevers, what we now know as specific febrile diseases, do have a fairly standard course, critical days served as a diagnostic device. A fever that failed to conform to schedule might have shifted its type. During the 18th century, a pathophysiological model largely replaced this periodic fever template. It's evident in the Scottish adaptation of Borhava by Cullen. Factors that debilitate the sensorium bring capillary spasms that then trigger overreaction and exhaustion. The applicability of the model was clearest in what German writers began to call nervous fevers. The model underlies Cullen's three-part continued fever nosology, Sinoca, a hot, um, highly active inflammatory fever, typhus, a nervous fever of prostation and delirium, and Sinocus, a generic intermediate form. Though it did not displace the well-recognized exanthemata, Cullen's minimalist nosology was to be the practical alternative to the Baroque taxonomies of Linnaeus and Sauvage. The Sinoca typhus poles translate readily into depletive or supportive therapy. So basically, what Cullen wants, aside from malarial kinds of diseases, all other fevers, uh, and aside from things like smallpox, all other fevers are to be classified under one of these three terms. Very simple. For Cullen, nervous sister was nervous fever was the main template. Sinoca might once have been common, but many reported they rarely saw it. Inflammatory fevers they did see were more often site-specific, while Sinocus, he admitted, was more placeholder than defensible entity. It would correspond roughly to our flu-like symptoms. The result was that both typhus and Sinocus became generic for continued fever. But the most worrisome new fever were some versions of this typhus. They were often slow, lasting three weeks or more, even before a delicate convalescence, and low, associated neither with great heat nor hard and racing pulse. And while there might be periods of manic delirium, they often involved long periods of stupor, known as the typhoid state, which had led Sauvage to resurrect the Hippocratic typhus notwithstanding that the five forms of typhus in the Hippocratic text did not resemble this disease at all. 
Though often spontaneously generated, these nervous fevers might become both deadly and contagious. To us, this typhus will include both typhus and typhoid, but it included much else too, probably including some distinctly famine-related conditions, both general inanition and particularly particular deficiency diseases. Back now to the social and institutional. It is the class and contagion aspect that led to the rapid proliferation of fever hospitals in Ireland, beginning with Waterford in 1800 and Dublin's Cork Street in 1804. Financing facilitated parliamentary grants, grand jury matching funds, landlord authorized tenant paid, and these are the institutions of fever statistics. Fever is measured in admissions to fever hospitals, registered by house officers in Dublin or managers of hospitals in the provinces. So lots and lots of medical charges all over the place. Here, comparison with the great hospitals of their rivals in Paris is illuminating. Irish and Parisian hospitals were on opposite trajectories. Conceived as refuges for the wretched, the great Paris hospitals were medicalized during the revolution. The newer Irish fever hospitals embodied the doctor's promise to protect society by preempting contagion. Thus, Pierre-Louis discovered a specific fever in a population defined in terms of disease rather than misery, while the Dublin doctors imposed a generic febrility on the impoverished. If there were plenty of wretched poor in Paris, shocked Americans wondered how they stayed, they stayed alive, uh, and some recognition of the toll of hunger, it did not figure in hospital fever. There is much more fever in Dublin than in many places, and it is so much milder, I suspect, because the institutions represent or register a general febrility. In Paris, concentration on what was becoming typhoid fever um, was allowing the extraction of a distinct mode of fever from all other febrile diseases. By contrast, on the context of combating febrile disease, the complementary Irish typhus, already loose, threatened to become even looser. Already in 1815, Richard Grattan was protesting, quote, typhus originally signified fever with stupor. It is now used for every form of contagious fever which assumes a malignant character. It is a term so indefinite and so universally misapplied that its abuse has created the greatest confusion, unquote. But Grattan's preferred definition was still broad. All non-inflammatory fever, which registered as, quote, disturbance of the sensorium, unquote. Other colleagues were struggling with the same problems. Grattan's definition assumed first that sensorium-based non-inflammatory fevers existed, which ran counter to distinct minority positions of Grousset, John Armstrong, and Henry Clutterbuck, to whom all fevers were inherently local and inflammatory, and that if there was a difference, a diagnostician could recognize it. But, notes his colleague Don Sean Cheney, quote, everyone knows that in many chronic visceral diseases inflammatory diseases, uh, fever is apt to be kindled up, which, although frequently accidental, cannot always at once, once be distinguished from idiopathic fever. What we call typhus is evident in clinical descriptions. Rapid onset, intense headache, delirium petechiae, profound prostration. 
That disease was relatively rare in Dublin. Sometimes it will be called true typhus or perfect typhus as opposed to typhus, much as we use flu both loosely and technically. Or it will not be called typhus at all, whether because the term had become too broad or was simply too broadly defined by Cullen. O'Brien uses typhus, but our typhus is his malignant fever. Graves refers to Irish maculated fever, ignoring patechial spots, in turn emphasizing the reddish, a dark reddish tinge, and some of this is probably our typhus. But most fever, they agree, is neither of these things. The catch-all Sinocus applies to it in a formal sense, or it may simply be called common continued fever. <coughs> Reviewing usage in 1820, O'Brien presents distinct seasonal typhuses. Typhus could be cerebral, our typhus, pulmonic in spring, gastric with both bilious and dysenteric varieties in late summer, low or simple typhus, or rheumatic typhus. In the wake of the Great Famine, one commentator distinguishes typhus from fever. Concurrency, too, undercut uh, confident demarcation. Grattan wrote of typhus with dysenteric symptoms, or of pneumonia with continued fever, or fever dysentery, or the hybrid disease of the poor. Many, like O'Brien, seek adjectival designators characterizing fevers in terms of sites of determination. Thus, O'Brien suggests something like typhus inflammatorius cerebralis. So to sequelae, where the French approach was to sever classical presentation from complications and sequelae, Irish writers present sequelae not as anomalous but as central to the therapeutic challenge and as regular aspects of Sydenhamian epidemic constitutions. If before 1816, the first of the famine fevers, it was commonplace to explain a clinical condition called typhus as a product of debility, increasingly the argument went the other way. Famine exemplified debility, whatever quasi-febrile disease followed must be some kind of typhus. Interestingly, despite nearly universal ascription of fever to famine, the term famine fever was usually occasion not for diagnosis, or usually occasion, not diagnosis, though some authors do rec recognize a particular starvation facies. Not just lingering fever, great prostration, thirst, dry, chaffy, hot feel of the skin, weak, feeble pulse, intellect clear, but also dropsy and unusually foul odor. Such symptoms occurred in the famine-related fevers of 1817-18 and again in 1826. They were seen as peculiar to the poor, had no particular stages, no delirium. Recovery depended on food, which in contrast with the typical anorexia of fevers was continually sought. In France or America, this disease would have been atypical typhoid in lack of mental and intestinal involvement and presence of dropsy. Such symptoms overlapped with frequent and ancient and early modern references to putrid fever. The term often refers to quasi-gangrenous features, ulcers and hemorrhages, especially, uh, especially fetidness of breath and of other secretions and excretions. O'Brien describes a 37-year-old man, quote, emaciated with edema of the feet, black swords on teeth and gums, patechiae on back and chest, evolving into large and circular purple spots. 
is such a putrid fever that Graves invokes as evidence for the indistinguishability of fever and hunger. Graves cites the mid-18th century fever writer John Huxham of Plymouth, who describes a patient who has refused, refused food. Quote, feverish, flushed in his face, very hot in his head, his pulse was small but very quick. In four or five days, his breath became exceedingly offensive. His lips dry, black, and parched. His teeth and mouth foul, black, and bloody. Urine vastly, highly colored, and stinking. At length, he trembled continually, could not stand, much less walk, raved and dozed alternately, fell into convulsive uh, agonies frequently, in which he sometimes sweated pretty much about the head and breast. Extremities were quite cold, pale, and shriveled. The sweat was of a very dark yellow color and of a most nauseous stench. Well, this is a fairly good description of the kinds of things that get characterized as putrid fever, with the exception that the gangrenous patches, uh, which take a while to develop, are not, are not there yet. Um, this condition might be called purple fever, or gastropurpuric fever, or called scorbutic, a term which, as a division of cachexic, applied to one's constitutional tendency without necessarily signifying the disease scurvy. Huxham's context, like Graves, however, was not fever but nutrition. Though the passage occurs in his dissertation on malignant sore throat, it is part of a consideration of dietary causes of putrid diseases. Huxham introduces the passage to exemplify a claim that the blood of those that die of famine becomes highly acrimonious, which begets fever, frenzy, and such a degree of putrefaction as is utterly destructive of the vital principles. These were bad signs of late-stage fevers. Other than the adjective putrid, they do not warrant separate diagnosis, but do represent a major therapeutic challenge. Putrid, systems, excuse me, putrid symptoms would continue to be admitted in tropical fevers, like yellow fever and pernicious malaria, but be written out of the emerging classical descriptions of European continued fevers. At best, they were unusual complications. It's in the skins of these fevers that we encounter a final retrospective diagnostic minefield. So I told you we were going to see spots. There they are. Um, in the second half of the century, 19th century that is, the characteristic eruptions of typhus, petechiae, and of typhoid, rose-colored spots, were precisely defined pathognomics. Now, Irish doctors report petechiae, but what they meant by it is another matter. Graves never seen petechial fever epidemic in Ireland. The assumption being that if anyone would have seen it, it would have been him. Um, he had seen measles-like maculae, dark and livid. Um, some of what were claimed to be petechiae, he said, were actually flea bites. And modern writers do compare. They say petechiae look like flea bites. Um, those who described large and bright red petechiae, he thought, were simply using the term very loosely and might mean maculae. The maculae, or petechiae, in turn, may overlap with the great violet ecchymosal gangrenous blotches, or vivaches on the lower body that are parts of the putrid state, and in turn of scurvy, a disease which Grave told his students they would probably never actually see. 
Graves had seen scurvy cases only once in young men of vigorous constitutions, but his descriptions overlap with putrid fever and typhus, quote, an eruption resembling petechiae, and in some parts large blotches and ecchymoses like those of purpura, followed by extreme debility and prostration of strength. Uh, in 1847, J.O. Curran, finding scurvy suddenly epidemic in Ireland, would struggle, in my view, unsuccessfully to differentiate it from purpuric fever. Assuming continuous fever everywhere would correspond to what they see in their hospitals, French and English clinicians would largely dismiss Irish fever experience. Evidently, Ireland's doctors, who missed spots that were surely there, confused terms and failed to police the meaning of typhus, were bad observers, arbitrary users of language, and frivolous diagnosticians. Their failure to relegate putrid symptoms to secondary status was of a piece with their loose use of typhus. When such symptoms appeared in parts of Scotland and England a generation later, they would be diagnosed as scurvy, perhaps with feverish concomitants. In their failure to, exact, to extract general diagnostic truths from signs, the Irish doctors had effectively wasted a huge opportunity that their many thousands of fever cases afforded for clinical research. After all, here was their chief, the August Graves, who'd actually studied on the continent founding a major claim on the authority of John Huxham, a student of Hippocrates. Dublin, it seemed, might have been Paris had its doctors only. So this kind of verdict of Irish medicine seems to me to be very unjust. In fact, most Irish practitioners do pride themselves on observation, and they are very wary of theory, which they see as insidious in the putatively atheoretical French medicine. Are they fooling themselves? Well, of course they do have a theory, or rather a framework. A Borjavian common sensory, Stoker explained, linked to the census communis of the Scottish philosophers, integrated all depressing causes, including mental states. Debility and depression were used interchangeably, they overlapped with our concepts of fatigue, exhaustion, and mood disorders to affect fever incidence and outcome. Quote, causes especially which act through the medium of the mind more than any others either give security to the individual or render him liable to the effects of contagion. When disappointment, apprehension, and despondency seize upon the mind, disease is produced and contagious fevers and dysentery break out according to Richard Grattan. Yet so complex was the integration and so vast its sphere that the most prominent focused on symptom-based therapy and the broadest prevention. In 1830, again in 1846, Corrigan would reject labored or obscure discussion of the nature of fever. Forsaking pathology, he would use simple antecedents, the only valid causality, according to the philosopher-physician Thomas Brown, and a modest regulatory rule of uniformity to assert that famine somehow caused fever. What one has, then, is a reinforcing structure of concepts, practices, and institutions, a holistic physiology-centric framework proud of its classical past, integrated into a professional hierarchy with a peculiar set of educational, curative, and prophylactic institutions. Together, these shape medical knowledge quite distinctly. 
if Irish doctors recognize discrete diseases, each possessing the body for its ideal period, they expect to treat an unhealthy population who will be ill in multiple ways. There's little sense of primary versus secondary symptoms, for all are relevant to comfort, function, and survival. A broad typhus highlighting common case management problems might be much more valuable than assuming a single essential disease and overlooking its variability and complications. Interest in spots, finally, was often in pathophysiology that produced them. Variation might be continuous, not discrete, and the spots of any one case might vary and were parts of its distinct evolution. Now I'm going to conclude with... Uh, a set of four reflections that invite discussion. Um, the first is, of course, what I've mostly been talking about, that we need to be very cautious in figuring out what they mean by technical terms. Um, and it's not always at all clear. They rarely are these terms illustrated with pictures. Uh, the physicians like Graves themselves are sometimes aware that others of their colleagues are using terms differently than they. So, so that's something that I think you know, we have to be very careful about. Um, the second kind of issue that's part of this larger project, which I haven't talked very much about, um, is I've alluded to the way this fits into a kind of distinct mode uh, of the way Irish medicine is institutionalized, in particular Irish medical charities, and the way that fits into um, the social policy of the colonial government. The slide I began with suggests in 1835, the medical charities were the poor law of Ireland before there was uh, an official poor law. So it's worth thinking about um, the degree to which a certain amount of ambiguity and the defining of fever was actually one of the vehicles that allowed the medical charities to respond to things like hunger. Uh, the cure, by the way, for fever was food. So if you think about that, it sort of goes together. Um, the third is to think about this Irish style of clinical medicine. Um, if you read general histories of medicine, you find that the Great Dublin Clinical School, what's called the Great Dublin Clinical School, the kind of people that I was talking about, Graves and Corrigan and Stokes, um, have been sort of shunted off to a sideline. Uh, and the main line of medical history runs through Paris, and it runs through a kind of medical history that was set up to privilege infectious diseases. Um, so what's so important about Paris is you get the first clear demarcation of typhoid fever uh, happening in you know, about this time that I've been talking about. And um, the Dublin doctors who are interested in, in sort of clinical signs that go along with chronic diseases, diseases, particularly things like heart murmurs and so forth, sort of get forgotten in that story. Well, I'm suggesting that you know, we, the medicine that we live in now actually pays a lot more attention to chronic and constitutional diseases. So maybe it's time to look more carefully at why the Dublin doctors are so resistant to categorization, but they're very interested in individual cases and the kinds of problems that happen in individual cases. So I think they're a really interesting group of people who don't fit the standard template, but we should pay more attention to them. And the final one here you know, has to do, again, I alluded to this before, it's about the way in which 
Irish historians would tell the story of famines and epidemics. Um, when you think about this, you have a very strange situation in which you have a cultural icon which is known for fever, for having died of a fever. Um, and that's sort of odd in its own right. Um, Paul Weindling, in his work on typhus in Eastern Europe um, in the period from about 1890 up through the Second World War, um, recognizing the uh, sensitivity of these issues, points out the association of typhus um, with, with Jews um, and uh, points out the fact that um, the modes of responding to Jews that were set up, um, those that led into the, the, the institutions of the Holocaust, were typhus control institutions. Now, if you think about that, you know, would you want the famine, you know, would Irish historians want the famine to be understood in terms of lice and microbes? Uh, well, what Weinling is saying is that certain people had attempted to, un to un understand the Holocaust in just that sort of way. If you go online and look up Holocaust revisionism, or if you use the term Holocaust and typhus as your key words, one of the things you find out is certain Holocaust revisionists want to represent the death camps simply as failed typhus control institutions. So everybody who died in the Holocaust simply died of typhus. We translate this into the, the situation of Irish history. Most books on the famine point out that something somewhere around 85 to 90 percent of people during the famine die of infectious diseases. So there's a kind of question. We don't want to go that far toward this end of representation again. So, see, there is an issue, I think, of understanding the use of these terms like typhus in terms of this very major narrative issue in Irish history.